Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. We just celebrated Easter two weeks ago. And the followers of Jesus say that the reason that we celebrate Easter is because of the promise that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, so also we can have a whole new kind of life if we believe in him. I want to ask you a question about that this morning. The question is, do you really believe that? And if the answer is yes, I want to ask you to do something demonstrative. If you really believe that it's possible for us to have new life because Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, would you say amen in some sort of believable fashion this morning? That's what I'm talking about, Joel, right there. Yes. This is what we believe. This is, this is the core. This is the very heart of everything that Christians believe. We're so grateful that we've been forgiven of our sins. That's what the crucifixion was about. But know this, from the very earliest days of the Christian faith, and especially for about the first 300 years, the cross got very little mention. And the empty tomb, the resurrected Jesus, was the focus of the early Christians. And because of it, their lives were characterized by power, by enthusiasm, and by a ridiculous optimism. They thought they could face absolutely anything because Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Some point later in church history, somebody said, you should think more about how guilty you are. You should think more about your sin. And the church began to look back past Easter to the cross. Now, we're always going to have one hanging in our church, and we've got it uh, out here on display for a reason. It's because without the death of Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sins. And all the rest of this stuff, just pack your bags and go home if Jesus didn't die for sins, because without that, it is impossible for human beings to have peace with God, let alone with themselves. But we have to be a people of two things, of the cross and of the empty tomb. And because of the empty tomb, it's possible for us to live a whole new kind of life. But what do we mean by that? When we say that we have new life in Christ, it means a number of things. It really is a big, full statement packed full of meaning. But it necessarily implies that whatever this new life is, it it was in some way fundamentally different than the life that we had before we came to new Jesus. Whatever else it may mean, it definitely means that this new life in relationship with Jesus is supposed to be noticeably different when it comes to how we Christ followers respond to hardship and suffering. I've sometimes wished that Jesus would just, you know, take away all of the hard stuff. If I'd just give him my life, if I, would, if I would place my trust in him, that he would just smooth out the road in front of me and take all of the hard stuff away. He does that for us an awful lot of times. He does good things for us, but he has made no promise to make everything easy and make all the hardship go away. You and I have not faced the last hard things in our lives. This morning I want to share with you what I have learned from my own experiences of pain and sorrow and hardship. And from what the Bible has to say about those things. And it's my hope that by the time you leave here today, you will have found some very real world help for dealing with the tough times that maybe you're facing right now. 
or will face in the future. Again, what I share with you today comes from two sources. It comes from what I have studied in the Bible and how I have observed those truths at work in my life. And as I face my life's next hardship, who knows what it is, it will be with the following understandings. Number one, nothing slips past God. Nothing slips past God. Absolutely nothing, no thing slips past God. That sounds like a kind of thing a preacher ought to say and that people should get excited about and say amen about, except that it means this, that when hardship, difficulty, pain, sorrow, suffering comes our way, it means it didn't slip past God but that he either sent it or allowed it. Those are things that an awful lot of people don't want to believe about God. But if nothing slips past God, if he really has good peripheral vision, if if between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they can see the entire expanse of human experience and all spiritual realities, then it means that nothing slips past the God. And that means that the things that do make it through the filters of God's love and providence and protection have either been sent by him or allowed by him. Hmm. It means that suffering has become part of the plan for God's dearly loved children because he knows that we have to learn to survive in a hostile world with our faith intact. Many times, when people experience hardship of some kind, they ask some form of the question, well, where was God when X happened? If God is loving, then why did X happen to me or my neighbor? And these two questions, coupled with the reality that painful things do happen to people, would seem to to leave us in the place of having to choose between two conclusions. Either that God sometimes goes missing in action, or that he's a jerk who for no good reason allows bad things to happen to people. Neither of those things is true. God is not a jerk. And nothing slips past him. He knows that we live in a fallen, broken, messed up world that is going to deal us some nasty blows and bad hands from time to time. And it matters to him. Because we matter to him. So he intends to use the suffering that will come our way to strengthen us and equip us for living in this world for a lifetime and making it out of this life with our faith intact. Nothing slips past God. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus was talking to his closest followers, and and most specifically, he called out to Simon Peter. He said to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus, in this short paragraph to Peter, was acknowledging that that there is an evil one in this world 
and that he wants to shake us so much so that we lose our grip on God and faith and lose our bearings in this world. But in the same paragraph, he is also acknowledging that God uses that process of our shaking to help us sort out the weaknesses in our own lives. Listen, this doesn't sound very comforting, but the writer to the Hebrews said, God himself shakes what can be shaken so that the things that cannot be shaken will finally remain. Man, I don't know about you, but it seems a little bit worrisome to me if I'm going to face life facing a personal devil who's asked to shake me so hard that he shakes my faith loose, and God who says, when he's done, I'm going to shake you a little bit, and we're going to shake loose all the stuff that doesn't belong with you. That seem a little heavy? And yet we find it in the Scriptures. Maybe we should let that begin to inform the way that we now interpret and give meaning to suffering in our lives. The pressures and the pains that God allows through the filter of His protective love are intended to produce something powerful and good and purifying and durable in our lives. But notice that when Jesus was talking to Peter, he also placed himself square in the middle of our suffering. Rather than abandoning us in the time of our sorrow or pain or pressure, Jesus claimed to be doing something active on our behalf while we're hurting. What was it? He said, I'm going to be praying for you. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you think that the Heavenly Father ever says no to any of Jesus' requests? You think when Jesus goes to his father, he asks for some things, and God goes, ah, I don't think so. We already did that once. You think he ever looks at him and says, Jesus, you just don't get me, or you never would have asked that. Jesus, what are you thinking? Instead, the Scriptures teach us that the Father and the Son are one, perfectly united in every way, so that when the Son goes to the Father and says, please, The father's answer is always yes, yes, yes to his son. And this passage that we just read says that Jesus himself is praying for you in the middle of the most difficult times in your life. When you feel like it's being shaken and you can't tell whether it's God or the devil himself, we have this assurance that Jesus is at the right hand of the father saying, listen, 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 I got to tell you something about this gal over here, about this guy over here. They need you. That Jesus is interceding for us with the Father. Jesus said that when you and I are being shaken, he's praying something very specific. He's praying that our faith will not fail. In the middle of the hardship or the pain, do you ever think, I don't know how much longer I can take this. You ever think, I'm not going to make it through this. This real world kind of stuff this morning. And Jesus, fortunately, is a very practical God. He prays for us. You have doubts about whether you're going to crumble under the pressure? Listen, Jesus has doubts about you too, (laughs) okay? He knows you. He knows you and your weakness. He knows you and your inabilities. He knows that the Father made you out of dust. He was there that day. 
You wonder about whether you can survive the load that you're under right now? Listen, Jesus himself says, I've got my doubts too. And that is why I'm doing two things. I'm interceding with the Father. I'm saying, Father, remember, you made them out of dust. They've got their limits. Father, take a look at her. Her heart's broken. That's enough. She's gained everything she can gain from this difficult time. Father, watch him. Watch him. He's trying. He's trying to stand up under the load. But it's too much. Send your Holy Spirit to bear him up. Take the load. Friends, if you wonder whether you can take the pressure that you are under right now, the the answer is probably no. But you and God together can. And he's promised that he will be there to help you with it. Life may be shaking you like a rag doll. And if it is then you need to grab on to this game-changing truth. Jesus is talking to the Father about you right now. And between him and our Father, nothing is going to slip past them. It means that whatever difficulty comes your way, God has chosen to allow it, but only with the promise that he will personally escort you through it. And Jesus himself will be whispering in his ear the whole time. As I face the next difficulty in my life, I hope it's a long ways off. I will face it with this knowledge that nothing slips past God. But also with this understanding that God never wastes a hurt. God never wastes a hurt. If God chooses to allow or to direct suffering our way, it's because he has already found a way for us or someone else to benefit from the hardship. God will not stand for mere tragedy. He can't stand it. He has an always redemptive heart. And because of that, he cannot stand for mere tragedy. He always looks for a way to extract some good thing out of the hard things. The first book of the Bible, Genesis, tells the story of a man whose name was Joseph. He was a bit of a jerk as a young man. Next to the youngest of 12 sons in a blended family, he clearly was dad's favorite, and he lorded that over his whole family, even over his own mother. One day, his brothers decided they'd had enough of it. Joseph was uh, probably late teen, about 17 years old when this happened. His brothers just decided, we're not putting up with it anymore. And so uh, they took advantage of removal from camp. They were all out uh, watching the sheep. They jumped Joseph, and they ended up selling him to a caravan of slave traders who were on their way to Egypt. They sold him and changed his life. But that changed Joseph. But as he was maturing, it was taking place under hardship. He had been a free man. He was an heir to a rather large estate and became a menial slave. And it was the hardship, the hatred of others, and the hardship placed upon him by his master that began to shape him. As he was maturing, growing up, noticeably so, becoming a better man, his owner's wife accused him of attempted rape, and he was thrown into prison. Falsely accused, Joseph could have grown bitter, but made a decision instead that he would grow better. While he was there, he helped out an accused government official and was promised a favor upon the official's release, but the guy, you know, conveniently forgot, and Joseph spent some more years in prison. 
Again, instead of dwelling on the pain, Joseph made a decision that he would view those circumstances as getting shaped instead of getting shafted. Let me ask you a question. Based on your, say, last three weeks of Facebook posts, does the world think you're getting shafted? Or can it tell that you and God together are working on a shaping project? See, how you view the hardships at work, how you view the difficulties at home, how you view the stuff that happens at school and the way that you express it to others, it will make it very clear whether you are being shaped by God and so able to make it through, or whether you think God and the whole world is against you and you're just getting shafted. Nobody ever said shafted as a good thing, did they? Joseph, free man, wealthy, heir, favorite son, slave, prisoner, forgotten, decided that he would view all those things as a way of being shaped instead of a way of being shafted. In time, he was not only released from prison, but he became a member of the royal court of Egypt, eventually second in command to the most powerful man on the earth at the time, Egypt's pharaoh. He ran the nation's agriculture and food enterprises, and he managed to get that nation through a seven-year famine. And in the course of that time, his brothers were then sent by their father to Egypt to buy food for their very big growing tribe because the famine does not know national borders, and it swept into Canaan as well. When the boys came down there to buy food, Joseph happened to be in the marketplace that day and in all of his formal Egyptian regalia, not at all recognizable as the one that they thought was probably dead by now, but he recognized them. Saw his brothers in the marketplace and he had them right where he wanted them, at his mercy. Revenge would have been so easy. But it wasn't what Joseph wanted. Why? Why didn't he want revenge? It's because of all the lessons that he'd learned in slavery and in prison. The lessons he learned during the hardest, most difficult, painful times in his life. That's what shaped him into the kind of man who no longer wanted revenge. Somewhere in the middle of all the horrible years of pain and suffering, God had taught Joseph a powerful lesson that changed his entire outlook on human suffering, and it can change yours too. When his brothers realized who this Egyptian official was, they were scared for their lives because they knew what they would do if they were in his position. They knew what they had done when they had the power in the relationship. But Joseph was a changed man different kind of man than his brothers. And he said this. He'd gotten to know the the kind of God our God is. And listen to what he told his brothers. He said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Joseph believed that God never wastes a hurt. Hurts cost both us and God quite a lot. So God doesn't waste them. That's why he always works to extract some kind of good from them. What's the pain in your life today? 
The pain in your life clearly was not your choice for you. And quite frankly, it may not have been God's first choice for you, but it exists. It is. It's real. And because he loves you, God intends to take that thing that you no longer want. And he intends to take it and you in his hands and to work something good for you in the middle of the difficulty, the sorrow, the pain, the anxiety, the fear, the anger, the resentment. But some truth in advertising this morning. This is an inconvenient truth, but one that I feel absolutely compelled to tell you. I cannot stand here and honestly say that you will personally get something good out of every hard thing that you suffer. There's an element to the way that God works in this world that you may not like, but I I have to tell you, It's my belief that at times the good that God gets out of your hardship may not be for you. It may be for the benefit of someone else to whom you are now brother or sister. No, wait just a minute, Cliff. I kind of liked where you were going with the sermon earlier. You mean to tell me that after you made such a big deal about the goodness of God and the compassion of God for me in the middle of my suffering, now you're going to tell me that all this suffering is for some great good for somebody else? Not sure I like the plan. I know. I don't always like it either. I told you it's an inconvenient truth, but maybe it'll help if I illustrate it from my own life. Maybe it'll help you understand that I'm not making this stuff up and that the things that I'm talking about this morning have been field tested. My parents divorced when I was three years old. My dad mostly disappeared from our lives at that point. After three years, my mom remarried and she and my stepdad became followers of Jesus, the real kind, and they raised us to be the same. My birth dad lived a life of multiple addictions, multiple marriages, multiple divorces, multiple heartaches. In other words, 18 years ago this December, he called me to tell me that he had a rare form of cancer that is caused by smoking and drinking, and he had a 15% chance of survival. In fact, when the doctor diagnosed him, he came in and said, congratulations, you've killed yourself. Said he felt like the world's biggest cheat, but he wondered if there was a way that a guy like him could, quote, get square with God. I figured if I went to seminary for anything, it was to be able to explain the good news of the gospel to my dad. And so I explained to him that Jesus has made a way for all of us to get square with God and that God the Father loves nothing more than when our hearts finally turn and look his direction. It's all he needs is a little hint that we're looking his direction like we might want to come home. And he comes running our direction as fast as he can, arms open wide. Facing surgery, then radiation, then more surgery. So facing lots of pain. Ultimately facing his own death. My dad finally humbled himself before God. He confessed all the sin and all the the other junk that was his fault. He confessed it to us, his family. He confessed it to God and he asked all of us to forgive him and we all did. Most importantly, God forgave him. And in a moment, my dad became a new man with new life and a very visibly changed man. 
He lived that change very noticeably for the next eight months and then died of cancer. But when he died, he was at peace with his family. He was at peace with his ex-wife, my mom, who many of you have met. And he was at peace with God. And he is with God this morning. My dad's cancer was used by God to bring about a great good in my dad's life. He suffered horribly, but he benefited greatly. And I'm good with that. My stepdad raised me, and uh, we became very close. I didn't think of him as a step anything because he didn't treat me like a step anything. I am his son, and he is my dad. And that is a wonderful gift from God. Nine years ago, he was diagnosed with a rare form of liver cancer that's caused by a virus that is found uh, most frequently on the Native American reservations of the American Southwest, where he and my mom served as missionaries for a decade. The cancer was inoperable. And though they took a shot at killing it with chemotherapy, it was terminal. Dad suffered greatly. Cancer ate that 240-pound man down to 100 pounds of skin and bone. Late in his life, I asked him what he had learned from his suffering. Maybe I'll get the chance to share that with you another day. But I also asked him what his last wish was. He said that his greatest desire was that all of his children would come to believe in Jesus and would accept the gifts of forgiveness and new life that he offers to everyone who believes in him. In the middle of my dad's physical pain, they came and offered him marijuana to dull his pain. He turned it down, and he chose the pain because one of my sisters had been living in the grips of drug addiction and all the legal and financial and relationship complications that come with it. And he said that with God's help, he could face anything. And he wanted to show my sister that you can get through the worst stuff in life with God's help and without the help of drugs. And when he passed away, my sister had not made any noticeable change. But a lot of years have gone by since then. And in the last two years, my dad's hope for my sister has been realized. Somehow all the truth and the love and the hope that my dad talked about with her have come to make sense. And she has, she has embraced Jesus and is following him now. I checked Facebook before I came in here today. She checked in at her church and said, got my eyes wide open, looking for a connection with Jesus today. I'm grateful as I can be. God has used my dad's suffering to bring about something very good for my sister. My birth dad died from a, a cancer that is a predictable result of certain addictions, but God used that, that great pain and sorrow to benefit my dad very directly. My stepdad died from a cancer that apparently comes from being a missionary, and um, the beneficiary was somebody else. 
my sister, is it fair? Not at all. We don't ask that question at our house anymore. We've just decided that we'll give thanks. Trust God with the hard things in the belief that someone, somewhere, is going to benefit. Because God never wastes a hurt. It might be us, it might be someone else, but God never wastes a hurt, so we surrender our hurts to Him to be used as He sees fit. I'd ask you to please give real consideration to what I'm about to say. It's a third thing that I've learned from and about suffering. You and I are going to go through some great hardships in this life. That much we know. But I've learned that I can only get the benefit that God hopes to extract from my suffering if I let go of my anger, sorrow, bitterness and open up my heart to the good, the growth, and the grace. I'm going to say it again. I can only get the benefit that God hopes to extract from my hardship if I will let go of my anger, sorrow, and bitterness, whether that's toward God for letting this stuff happen or toward people for the things they've done to me. I can only get the benefit that God hopes to extract from my hardship if I let go of my anger, sorrow, and bitterness and open my heart up to the good, the growth, and the grace that God offers in the middle of it. And it never works the other way around. If if I wait until I've seen and experienced the good before I will agree to let go of the anger, the sorrow, the resentment, I am never going to get the good because I won't be able to see it while I'm eating a steady diet of anger, resentment, and bitterness. It colors your vision, and you'll never see the hand of God. You'll never see the good. You'll never see the growth. You'll never see the grace as long as you hang on to all of the ugly. God is not willing to waste a hurt. But you have to answer the question whether you will. You see, you get to choose tragedy or triumph, poison or peace in your soul. Are you tired of an ongoing pain or sorrow, anger, resentment, bitterness? Tired of the pain, the pressure, the stress, the worry? Do you you want God to make something beautiful out of the ashes in your life? Or do you want to be left with only the soot that remains when something in your life has burned to the ground? On the screen, you see the pictures of two items from my office. Amid the antlers and books and guitars are are these two artistic pieces made from the ashes. from the Mount St. Helens eruption back in 1980. They may not be to your taste in terms of art, and they may not even be good art at all, but I keep that elk and that fish in my office in line of sight because they represent to me a truth from the Bible that I cherish and that I have experienced firsthand many times. God makes beautiful things out of ashes if I will let go of the ashes. So how about it? Do you bear the pain or sorrow or anger or stress or resentment from bad things happening to you? Are you tired of it? 
Do you want God to make something good out of the ashes? Then if so, you gotta make a decision today. It's the decision to trust God with your hurt. I believe that God can be trusted with my pain. I think I believe that enough that I'll actually live free. Instead of living in fear of when the next bad thing's going to come along. Because I know that when the next bad thing comes along, God will get to me before the pain does. God will get to me before the hurt. God will get to me before the tragedy. And he will escort me through the hard times in my life. It's a freeing thing to be able to face the future that way. You still don't welcome hardship, right? And we live with this notion that there's a heaven somewhere where that stuff's over. But in this life, there's probably going to be some more tough things that come your way. The question is, will you trust God with the hurt? Can God be trusted with pain? Can he be trusted to only use pain enough to bring about good for us? Can he be trusted to relent when pain has done all the good that it can? I say yes. Because at the times in my life when I thought God and I together have reached the end of my rope, he's changed the circumstances. He's brought peace and comfort and help. The tides have turned. But quite frankly, uh, a sermon about future pain, it may equip you, but it won't be much good today. So I don't want us to focus on will you trust God at some point in the theoretical future with some unknown imagined hardship. It's too easy to answer yes. What I want to ask is, are you just tired of your reaction to the hard stuff? Because if you are, the Lord stands ready today to free you from it. Listen now, listen close. He may not free you from the hardship right now, but he promises to free you from the anger, the resentment, the fear. He does. He says, this is going to hurt. So trust me. Let me get you through it. Pardon me. This uh, sacrament is uh, another illustration of exactly what I've been talking to you about this morning. Because this represents the body of Jesus, the crucified body of Jesus. This, the blood that was spilled by his torture and then crucifixion. Writer to the Hebrews, a letter in the New Testament, said, Jesus, for the joy set before him, not the, he wasn't experiencing the joy at the moment, for the joy set before him, endured the cross 
despising its shame. Why? How? Because he knew him who is faithful. Jesus knew what was coming, the, uh, the ugly, the hurt, the pain, the accusations, the lies, the, the embarrassment. Any of the things that had been done against him all his life long for the last three years, how they'd been plotting to murder him, trying to find a way. He remembered that his own family said, he's lost his mind, let's go get him. Put him away. He's embarrassing the family. He held on to none of it. Instead, he held on to the Father's love and the promise that God would take this hardship and make something beautiful and holy and good. Now, I guess a certain argument could be made that it, it turned into something good for Jesus because all of his brothers and sisters are able to come home now. But primarily, that hurt, that hardship was for your benefit and mine. Jesus himself signed up for the kind of hardship that benefits others because he trusted that God would never waste a hurt, that nothing would ever slip by him. So he would turn loose of the ashes and open himself up to the good, the growth, and the grace that could come. And I want to invite you to do that today. Um, communion team, why don't, why don't you come and, and start serving, if you would. But I, I want us to approach communion, I, I think, fundamentally differently today. Typically, I know when we're served these elements, we start thinking about our sin. And we start thinking about, oh, I'm unworthy. And I, I suppose that at some level, those things are healthy and good. And, it, and if you know that there is some... Sin that stands between you and God today, by all means, confess that thing to him. Ask him to forgive you, and then don't give it another thought because he promised that he will forgive. But today, I want to offer all of us a chance, while we're receiving these things from Jesus, to give something to him as well. Say, Jesus, I will take the emblems of your suffering, and I turn loose of the anger, the resentment, the unforgiveness, the fear, the stress, the worry. And I will receive life from you, real life, free life, joyful life in its place. Why don't you talk to him about that for a moment? One last thing, friends. I know that um, there's some folks here with uh, gluten allergies. We don't want you to be left out of the Lord's Supper. So Dwayne over here has uh, servings of the body and uh, gluten-free if you need that. You can just uh, give him a wave, okay?
Jesus offered his body to us. As we take and eat this, will you offer him the offenses of the past? The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and eat this remembering Christ died for you. Jesus offered his blood to us so that we might be forgiven of our sins, the things that we've done that have been an offense to others and to him. Would you release others from their sins today, those who've hurt you? The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and drink this, remembering that Christ died for you, and be thankful. Please stand with me. In your holy presence, Lord, we often find peace. But there are some times when your presence stirs us up. If any of your children gathered here today are struggling with letting go of anger, resentment against a brother or sister, or against you for allowing the things that you've allowed to happen. I pray that you'd be merciful. I pray that you'd be patient. And I pray that you would be close enough that they would feel the comfort and peace that they need to let go of the hurt. Lord, help us to learn from the things that we've suffered The writer to the Hebrews said it about you, Jesus. Although he was a son, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Would you help us to learn from the hardships in our lives? Help us to be people like you. Never waste a hurt. I pray for my friends who are tired, broken, and weakened by their struggles. And with confidence, I ask you to be close, so very, very close to them, to provide healing where now there's only hurt and hope. In your name I pray, amen. My friends, may you know his peace this day and always. Amen.